Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the third chapter of Revelation tonight, and we'll resume our study of this book. And we've been taking a close look at the seven churches that are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3, and I pointed out to you that these were seven churches located in seven various cities throughout Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And though they were literal churches, the message to these seven churches, they also are really a picture of every local assembly. And there are points of application that certainly apply to us as we've studied uh, these seven churches. There's some major takeaways from these letters, which they're addressed by the Lord of the church himself to the church, sent by the Lord of the church to the church. And these letters reveal that he loves his church and he wants his church to be healthy. Uh, The Lord wants the church to be a true reflection of himself in the world. A church that's actively engaged in the, the mission of reaching the world, making disciples. And so each of the churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, they dealt with some particular crisis. Now we've seen four of these already beginning with the church at Ephesus there in chapter 2. The issue at Ephesus, they were facing a crisis of motivation. This is the church that had left its first love. And they were busy, but uh, theirs was an issue of worship. There was a lot of activity, but they needed to sit at the feet of Jesus and return to their first love. Well, the church at Smyrna, they dealt with a different crisis. Theirs was a crisis of affliction. And interestingly enough, the Lord doesn't rebuke the church in Smyrna, but he has nothing but words of praise, words of encouragement, words of commendation for those believers at Smyrna because they were suffering for the sake of their faith. The church at Pergamum was facing a crisis of compromise. There was some doctrinal compromise that had been introduced into the life of the church that needed to be dealt with. If not, things would get worse like they were at the church at Thyatira, which was facing a crisis of accommodation. So they had bought in lock, stock, and barrel to a false teaching, and Jesus dealt with the crisis at Thyatira with rather stern words. Now, tonight in our study, we come to the fifth church mentioned in the first six verses of Revelation chapter 3. And this is the church located in the city of Sardis. Now, if you pay close attention to the text, you'll notice that the church at Sardis, along with the church at Laodicea, these are the only churches that really don't receive a word of commendation at all from the Lord Jesus. It has nothing positive really to say about these congregations. So what's the issue then that is really being dealt with uh, by the church there in the city of Sardis. Well, these believers were facing a severe crisis of complacency. Complacency. You know what complacency is, don't you? Uh, Complacency is that feeling of smug satisfaction that a person often has. Where they take things for granted, they're comfortable, they're supposedly secure, but oblivious to the real situation. Well, that's the church in Sardis. It's a complacent congregation. It's a classic illustration of a dead and lifeless church. 
which really is an oxymoron when you consider what a church is just by virtue of its existence. Uh, It's like saying dry water. You know, it's oxymoronic simply because water, by virtue of what it is, is wet. Well, a church, by virtue of what it is, is alive. And so when Jesus is rebuking the church in Sardis and says you have a name that you're alive, a reputation for being alive, but in reality you're dead, there's some real issues going on at this church in this city. Now, you know that the church is more than an organization. Now, we need to be organized. Every church ought to be organized. God's not the author of confusion. But a church is more than an organization. A church is a living, vibrant organism. It's a body. It's a bride. It's an army. It's a living temple made up of living stones. And so a dead church then is a church in name only. And that was the problem with the church here at Sardis. So let's read, beginning with verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3, we'll read through verse 6. The Lord says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the issue with the church in Sardis is an issue of complacency. Now, just by way of introduction here, the city of Sardis itself was an old city at the time in which Revelation was written. If you went back in history to 549 B.C., the city of Sardis had been the capital of the Lydian kingdom. And the most striking thing about the city of Sardis was that it was situated high atop a hill that overlooked a wide valley below. In fact, you see there on the picture, you see the ruins of the temple. I believe it's the temple of Artemis, which was really never finished. But most of the city went up the hill to the Acropolis atop the mountain that you see there just behind those ruins. And uh, the sides of the hill rose 1,500 feet from the valley floor and were so steep that the citizens of the city considered their city to be unconquerable. There in the Acropolis on top of that high hill uh, was where they retreated into for safety, where they dwelt the uppermost part of the city. So there in the citadel of Sardis, situated on top of that hill, uh, you remember from antiquity, uh, King Croesus, who was known from antiquity as being one of the wealthiest kings who ever lived. Croesus, you've heard the phrase, as rich as Croesus. Well, Croesus was the king over the Lydian kingdom, and their capital city was Sardis. And so 
he was a legendary ruler. Uh, here's a painting from the 1500s of him. I'm pretty sure he probably didn't look like that. But that's a Dutch painting of Croesus surrounded by his wealth and people coming to ask him about his wealth out of interest. Herodotus was a Greek historian. He wrote about how Croesus wanted to go to war against King Cyrus of Persia. The very same Cyrus who's mentioned in the Old Testament. The very same Cyrus whose empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. The same Cyrus who issued the decree for the Jews to be able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Well, before the Persians were really an empire, they had empire building on the brain, but Croesus wanted to go to war against Cyrus. However, King Croesus and his army was defeated by Cyrus. Croesus retreated back to his city at Sardis, and he retreated into his citadel there on top of the Acropolis uh, at Sardis. And so uh, Cyrus and his army pursued. They surrounded the city, surrounded the hill. But Croesus and his people didn't really worry about it because in their minds, the city of Sardis was impenetrable. Now, the only access point was a southern gate that was sort of built on a low, narrow strip of land uh, at the southern end of the plateau upon which the city was built. This would have been heavily fortified, by a large contingent of, of uh, Croesus's army. So even if Cyrus chose to attack, he would really get nowhere. Well, Croesus would retreat into his wealth. He would retreat into his reserves, and he would just simply wait Cyrus and Cyrus's army out. They'd get bored, return back home, and things would go on as normal. Well, on the plain below, Cyrus had different plans. Because he was determined to defeat Croesus, take the city of Sardis, and use the wealth of the city to finance his own agenda of creating the largest empire that the world had ever known. All that stood in his way was a proud king and some complacent citizens who thought that they were out of harm's way because of the strategic location of their city. Now let me tell you what happened. One of Cyrus's men happened to notice a Lydian soldier who dropped his helmet over the edge of the rampart and then climbed down to retrieve it by way of a crack or a crevice in the rock. And so this Persian soldier paid careful attention. He marked the way, and then he climbed it later that night himself, followed by some other Persian soldiers. And so when the Persians reached the top, they found the walls unguarded because the citizens of Sardis had assumed that no one could ever scale the steep hillside and get into their city. So the city was asleep when Cyrus and his army made their move. Now listen, keep this in mind when you read the Lord's words to the church in Sardis. When Jesus says to the church, and this is many, many years after, centuries after, but he says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief and you won't know the hour that I come against you. And so we learn from this passage that man's reputation ultimately means nothing compared to God's assessment of our spiritual condition. What is it that often fosters a sense of complacency? I'll tell you what it is. 
We get self-reliant. We often retreat into our resources, our standard of living, our comfortable lifestyles, the things that we've always just taken for granted that we've had. And oftentimes we hide behind a thin veneer of religion. A church can do this very easily, even when it has a good reputation. And yet what people say about a church may not necessarily be what God would say when he looks into the situation because he's looking upon the heart. And I think we see this based on where we've been in our study of Amos. God dealt with superficial religion. The prophet cried out against that there in Amos chapter 9. We saw that Sunday morning. Well, the same thing would be true for the church in Sardis. So a few things here to keep in mind. Number one, notice the assessment of the church. What is the Lord's assessment of this church? Well, it's recorded there in verse number one. Again, Jesus is speaking to the congregation and he's reminding them something about himself, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. Now listen to this assessment. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. This is what's being said about you by man, but let me tell you what I know about you simply because I'm looking upon your heart. You've got a reputation of being alive, but you're really dead. So the roots of complacency in Sardis could be traced back to the city's social history. Sardis was a city living on a reputation from the past, but the past was long gone. The glory of the city had long departed. It had never regained the wealth that it enjoyed under the days of Croesus. It did fall to the Persians. It did fall to Alexander and the Greeks. It did come under Roman rule. But it never was really restored to that former glory during the zenith of the Lydian kingdom. But see, what you have here, you've got a cultural attitude and a spirit of a city that is really being manifest in the congregation of the city. The church is reflecting the spirit of the culture. And it bought into the way of living, bought into the mindset, bought into the lifestyle. And so here the church is in the grip of complacency. There were no vital signs now, you know, most medical settings, I know some of you work in the medical field, there are vital signs that are often always at the top of the list that uh, when you're, someone's in the hospital, they check up on all of these vital signs. You've got body temperature, you've got heart rate, you've got um, blood pressure, you've got respiratory rate, oxygen level, that kind of thing. And death happens when there's a permanent cessation of all vital signs, all vital functions. Well, if the church is a local, living, breathing organism, as such, it ought to have certain vital signs that can be monitored to determine its health and determine its life. What are those vital signs? I'll tell you where I believe you can find those vital signs. I think you can find them in the book of Acts chapter 2. I think Acts 2, 42, and the verses that follow, where you have the church, it's been born on the day of Pentecost. The local church is established. And what are those vital signs that you see evident in the life of the early church? Well, there's the centrality of the word of God. They'd committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and doctrine. God's word was central in the life of the church. They came together for the purpose of worship, the glory of God was what was in mind. They were consumed with the thought of the glory of God. Worship. 
They connected with each other relationally. They had a common life that they shared. The Bible uses the word koinia to describe that common life, fellowship. Fellowship's more than just sitting around the table enjoying a piece of chicken with a fellow believer. I'm glad we can do that. Can I get a witness? But man, fellowship means that we have a common life in the spirit, which means that we have a relationship with one another. I am more closely related to my brothers and sisters in Christ than I am my own blood relatives who do not know the Lord. Because the church is a family of faith. It's a fellowship. They gave themselves to prayer, so there was continual prayer and a life of discipleship. Uh, the Bible says the Lord added daily to the, to the church those who were being saved, so that means they were committed to personal evangelism. And so I believe that those are the vital signs that you can check up on in terms of the local church to determine just how healthy it is. Is it truly committed to the centrality of the Word of God? Is it truly com committed when it comes to coming together for worship in a corporate sense? Is its membership connected through fellowship? Uh, are they continuing in prayer and discipleship? Is there a commitment to evangelism, reaching the community, reaching the city, reaching the world, making disciples? All of these are vital signs of a truly healthy congregation. And if that's true of a congregation, then listen, it's got to be true of the individual Christians who make up that congregation. Because if it's not true of the congregation, it's because it's not true of the individual believers who make up that congregation. So you should ask yourself this question, what about those vital signs? How healthy am I in terms of my discipleship personally? And by the way, a lot of what we place so much emphasis on today in the church could easily disappear and the church could go right on and would be just fine. <gasps> a lot of stuff that we sweat if it, if it were stripped away, the church would go right on and be just fine, and in many cases, maybe healthier. Are you listening? So the vital signs that matter. All of this had been lost in Sardis. These vital signs were not registering. From the look of things, there was a semblance of life. Things looked good on the surface, on the outside. But again, the eyes of the Lord of the church looked beyond the calendar of activities that the church had established. He wasn't impressed by what was on their marquee. He didn't really care about their website. He didn't care about all of that stuff. He's putting his finger on the pulse of the church and he doesn't find one. So what does he do? Well, he begins by reminding them of their accountability and their stewardship. And that involved reminding them of his spirit. He says in verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. Reference to seven spirits there. Uh, more than likely, this is reference to the manifold ministry of the Holy Spirit. We saw this back in verse 4 of chapter 1. Seven is an important number throughout the book of Revelation. It's a number that means fullness, completion. Uh, this very well may be a reference to Isaiah 11 uh, verses 1, 2, and 3 where the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is described. Um, where Isaiah talks about uh, there come forth a, a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch will grow up from his roots, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The idea is that of the manifold ministry, the perfect ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Spirit of God in all of His fullness who imparts grace and vibrancy into the life of the church. Isn't it interesting that Jesus confronts a dead and lifeless congregation and the first thing that He speaks to is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What's the antidote? What's the answer? What's the cure for a church that's really on life support? (laughs) It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The answer to their deadness is the Spirit's fullness. Because apart from the Spirit, the church is lifeless. The church is powerless. So our main attraction as the body of Christ, it's not our methods, not our buildings, not our programs, not our ministry, not our personnel and all of that. It's the Spirit of the living God in our midst. This is what makes the church different from any other organization in town. It's the Spirit of God that's come to take up residence within the people of God. So the church isn't the building, the church is the people. It's the people. So Jesus wants these believers to come alive by means of his Spirit and to recognize that apart from his Spirit, they could do nothing. The seven stars referenced there in verse 1. More than likely, this is a reference to the leadership of the churches. And if that's correct... How true it is that the first step for a church really coming alive is for her leadership to come alive. Everything rises and falls on leadership. As go the leaders, so go those being led. The pastor complains about his church being dead. You ought to first look uh, look in the mirror, (laughs) right? Leadership submitted to the Holy Spirit, committed to the vital signs of the local church. This is key to congregational health. So he's reminding the church of his spirit. They needed a fresh move of his spirit. And then notice he's getting very specific and he rebukes the church for its sin. Their complacency was sinful. He says, I know your works. You've got the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. The word reputation there, the Greek word used, literally means name. And the point is, they were a church in name only. One person expressed it this way, Sardis had a name for strength, but she was weak. Sardis had a name for permanence, but the glory had departed. Sardis had a name for wealth, but she was poor. Here you have a church in a city whose name was almost synonymous with pretensions unjustified, promise unfulfilled, appearance without reality, confidence that heralded ruin. The church had its works. That's evident based on what Jesus says. But he says in verse 2, I've not found those works perfect or complete in the sight of God. In other words, they're, they're not authentic. They're not real in the sense of being baptized with his power. Now, ironically, a dead church can be full of useless activity. We tend to think that the dead church means, well, there's nothing going on. Well, there may have been a lot going on. Evidently, there were works going on, but these were not spirit-led, Christ-honoring works. 
So deadness does not always imply inactivity as far as the church is concerned. So you could probably assume that the church at Sardis is well attended, had been successful, was probably meeting budget. I would imagine that it had programs to help the poor, to build better community relations there with the city. Had a good reputation among non-Christians in the city. Probably was respected for being a well-known fellowship. Had the reputation of being alive. But Jesus says it's only an external impression from man's point of view. Because in the sight of God, there was lifelessness. We may find this hard to believe that you can be active, the church can have so much going on, and still be dead from a divine perspective because activity alone does not prove the reality of spiritual life because there is such a thing as fleshly effort. There is such a thing as works done in the energy and the effort of the flesh. Even our service can be a parade of flesh when it's not baptized in the power of God's Spirit. And yet Jesus said that the person who does give a cup of cold water in the name of a, a disciple will by no means lose their reward. What's the importance of what seemingly is a small act? It's when it's done in the energy and effort of God's Spirit, all for God's glory. That's what makes the difference. It's the motive of the heart. You know, this was something that Paul reminded the Corinthian church of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, if anyone builds on this foundation which has been laid, if they build with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, each one's work will be made manifest because the day will declare it. What's the day? When Christ comes. It'll be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So our ministry is going to be evaluated by the Lord of the church. The things I do in his name, the service I render in his name, the the sermons that I preach in his name, all of that is going to be weighed and evaluated by the Lord of the church. And man, oh man, I hope and pray that it's not just a bunch of wood, hay, and stubble in that day. Just a parade of flesh. So here you've got a church that's gone through the motions, but there's no inward passion, no devotion in terms of a relationship with Jesus. There's there's a furnace, but there was no fire. You might could say all they had was taxidermy. It might as well have been stuffed and placed on a mantle somewhere for show. So before I move on, I would ask this question, how do you think things kind of got into such disarray? If this is a profile of a lifeless church, what would their autopsy report say was the cause of death? I don't have this on the screen, but you may want to jot this down in the margin of your notes there. Complacency is a very real issue whenever a church relies upon past success. A church will die whenever it relies upon its past success. The church at Sardis was proud of its past, but it's nonchalant in terms of its present. And oftentimes, a dying church will relish the good old days and yet fail to serve Jesus with passionate devotion in the present. When a history room is more important than a prayer room, death is not far away. 
A second thing you can write down would be this. Uh, complacency can be a very real issue whenever sin goes unchecked in the lives of the membership. Evidently, when Jesus is looking into the situation at Sardis, he's looking upon the heart and he sees moral laxity. Here he sees a church that is bought into the spirit of the culture, the city in which it's been placed, but it's become insensitive to its own sin in its midst and, and, and some things needed to be dealt with. And then uh, complacency is an issue whenever we're insensitive to our own spiritual condition. A church will die when it becomes insensitive to its own spiritual condition, when the hearts of the people grow in, indifferent to the things of God, where there's a loss of appetite for God's word, for fellowship, for evangelism. Stagnation and death will only be a matter of time. I heard one preacher say it this way, a church that doesn't evangelize will eventually fossilize. So that's the assessment then of the church. Now, notice the second thing. Notice the appeal that Jesus makes to the church there beginning in verse number two. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die because I've not found your works perfect or complete in the sight of God. So they needed to understand how serious their situation really was. Now, let me tell you what's interesting. Unlike the previous two churches that we've considered, the Lord doesn't say anything negative about what the church believed. So there's no doctrinal rebuke here. They've not drifted into doctrinal error. There are no doctrinal issues to be addressed. Uh, neither does he mention any persecution or any suffering that they were experiencing like the believers in Smyrna had been experiencing. So here you have a church, they're not struggling with anything on the inside, they're not struggling with anything on the outside, they've just become complacent. James Montgomery Boyce says something I thought was so good, he said, what seems to be the case in Sardis is that the church was not struggling against heresy, it wasn't being attacked by the pagans or by a Jewish segment there in the city, unlike other churches. The largest synagogue from the ancient world that has been found was in Sardis, which suggests that thousands of Jews lived in that city. Yet the Christians at Sardis were so at home in their culture that there did not seem to be anything about them that was worth attacking. So you've got the church at peace, but it's the peace of a morgue at midnight. And just because a church is at peace, that doesn't always mean that things are good. And just because there are seasons of struggle, that doesn't always mean that things are bad. Because oftentimes, struggle is a sign of life. It's a vital sign. Where you have movement, you will have friction. And where there is friction, there will be heat. And that's not always comfortable. But thank God it's not the alternative. What's the alternative? It's the coldness, the power of death. So the Lord is dealing with the sin of the church. He's making this appeal, and here's what he says. He says, you need to wake up. The dying embers of the church's worship and witness were about to go out, and all that was left was a few smoldering coals. Warren Wiersbe says there was no persecution Because there was no invasion of enemy territory. 
So here you have a decent people with a dying witness and a decaying ministry. And yet, verse 4 says, there's a few in Sardis who had not soiled their garments with the spirit of the age. They hadn't caved in to the moral laxity that had been true of the majority, the complacent way of life that became custom in the lives of the majority. Which, by the way, the fact that the Lord is referring to a faithful few there in the church in verse 4, that's an important reminder that revival almost always begins with just a few people who get a burden. A few people who wake up to the condition of things around them and they become concerned. A few people who wake up to the true state of things. A few people who wake up to their spiritual corporate responsibilities. A few people. Like an Evan Roberts who just gets a burden and, and, and begins to pray and call a few people out to pray with him. And, and, and before you know it, you've got a Welsh revival on your hands. Or a Jeremiah Lamphere in New York City who becomes so concerned over the spiritual death that seemed to just settle over the city in the 1800s. But he just begins with a handful of other people praying over the city. And before you know it, you've got businessmen who are meeting all over the city in pockets and prayer meetings. And a revival movement begins in the city. It always begins with just a few people who have a burden And you know something, this tells me that Christians probably shouldn't be so quick to leave their church for greener pastures. You know where the word is not preached, where liberal theology has replaced the truth? That's one thing. People say, I'm just not being fed. That is one thing. But to be a church hopper that is constantly on the lookout for what suits your fancy. And you ask people, what's brought you here? And you hear something like this, well, we're just shopping around. I want to ask this question. Is Jesus some cosmetic item that you can put in your buggy and scan on the way out the door of Walmart? Is that what he is? Is he a product to be consumed? Or is he the sovereign Lord of life to whom I owe my all. You see what I'm saying? This consumerist mentality that it all exists for me and for my personal benefit. If that's the attitude, you might as well change the name of the church to Sardis. Spiritual vibrancy demands that God's people knuckle down and go to work in their church. Because that's what Jesus says. He says, you need to work hard. Wake up, but work hard. Look at what he says there. He says, strengthen those things that remain and is about to die. Don't just expect that somebody else is going to take care of business. You take care of business. Strengthen that which remains. Work hard. So it's intentional effort on their part that the Lord is calling them to. Praying is hard work, right? Oh, it's so much easier to turn on the football game and just veg out. I I get it. Praying requires hard work. The work of teaching, the work of coming alongside other people, that's hard work. Relationships is hard work. You know, we've lost the ability to be able to communicate in our modern society face-to-face, And that foments this sense of relational breakdown. 
And that takes its toll out on a church. And before you know it, you've got a bunch of people who make up the church that don't know each other. Because they ain't got time for each other. Well, sure, I get to know my few, but I really don't want to really put forward any other effort to try to get to know anybody else. <sighs> Steve McDaniel's still in here. He needs to turn that air conditioning down. I'm, it's hot up here. I'm going to tell you something right now. <laughs> Whew, I'm feeling some heat tonight. <laughs> Work hard, Jesus says. Wake up. And then he says, watch out. Watch out. Which, by the way, it's interesting that he says, remember what you've received. What had they received? John Stott makes the comment on this passage. He says they had received the life of the Spirit. The indwelling presence of the God of the universe. He had come to take up residence in these believers. Remember the deposit that had been given to you safeguard that deposit remember what you've received the life of God and then remember what you've heard what had they heard well the gospel the word of God it had to remain central in the life of the church in order for the church to have life health vitality so here you have a church that had forgotten the life of God's spirit and somehow the centrality of God's word it had all been pushed to the peripheral And it's the Spirit of God operating through the Word of God that's bringing people to life in Christ. So Paul tells Timothy, he says, listen, continue in what you've learned and what you've believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. From childhood, you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. So remember what you've heard, remember what you've received, And Jesus says, you've got to keep it and you've got to repent. That word keep, it's a present imperative. It means obey and keep on obeying. It's a a way of living that's being described there, a submissive, obedient lifestyle, whereby a person's cultivating an attitude of humility and repentance before God. You know, repentance is not just a one-time thing when you came to faith in Jesus. Repentance is a way of life for a believer, isn't it? I got to repent every day. Multiple times throughout the day, some days, especially Mondays. I'll just be honest. So the Lord says, watch out. Verse 3, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief. You know the history of the city? How Cyrus and his men showed up one night and found the city completely unprepared. The Lord says, if you're not careful, the same thing's going to happen to you. The Lord will come and find them unprepared for his coming. That's what complacency does. It leaves us vulnerable, and we don't even realize it. You know, that may kind of take us back to Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus says that his coming will be like a thief when he appears as a judge at the end of the age. It'll be like the days of Noah. He's going to find a whole bunch of people who are marrying and giving him marriage and are suddenly shocked to find that the judge has appeared. Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, when they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. Why? Because the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now, it's interesting that he's using this language to the church at Sardis, which I believe it's a specific word against this spiritually complacent church. If they refuse to wake up from their complacency, 
I believe what the Lord is saying here is that the time would come when they ceased to be a church at all. Just like Jesus told the Ephesians in chapter 2, I will come, I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, the Lord isn't going to tolerate a complacent church very long. He promised that he would build his church. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. But he didn't necessarily say that he would always build this local expression of it. We refuse to follow the agenda of the master and to submit to the master of the house. Mm. Go to Sardis now and what do you find? You find a heap of ruins. You don't find a vibrant church. If the Lord tarries his coming, I wonder, another generation from now, what will he find here? Let's just suppose that the Lord doesn't return in our lifetime which I believe with all my heart, based upon what's going on in the world, he's coming soon. I believe it now more than any time in my life. Many of you do too. But let's just suppose he does tarry his coming another generation. What will another generation find here? What have we inherited from those who've gone before us and what will we leave behind to those who are coming after us? I think that's a very appropriate question that we need to ask ourselves as a congregation, don't you? I do. One last thing, and I'll finish with this. What's the assurance for the church? Three things. There's the promise of his sudden return. I'm coming, Jesus says. Ready or not, here I come. And don't you find it interesting that a complacent church needed to be reminded about a coming Lord? There's just something about the truth of the second coming that motivates us. The fact that Jesus could come any minute. The fact that he could come in our lifetime. The fact that he could come this week, this year, tonight. That's something that motivates us. And it causes us to stop and evaluate the way we've been living. But what is... What's he going to bring for those who are faithful? Well, notice he talks about shining garments, his reward. Those who had not soiled their garments, he promises a brilliant garment of white. Shining garments which Jesus himself would clothe them in the kingdom. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before God's throne. That's what they had to look forward to. And those who are faithful, he assures of spoken recognition. He says he would not blot out their names uh, from the book of life. He would confess them openly before his Father. And those who know him in a personal way will hear him say, Well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I long to hear that at the end of my days. I do. One morning in 1888, Alfred Nobel, he woke up one morning to read his own obituary in the morning newspaper. It had been printed as a result of journalistic error. Actually, it was his brother who had died, and the reporter had accidentally reported the death of the wrong brother and wrote a whole story about Alfred Nobel's death. Any man would be disturbed under the circumstances, but Alfred Nobel was absolutely shocked because for the very first time, he saw himself as others saw him. The dynamite king, 
The industrialist who made this immense fortune, fortune off the creation of explosives. Well, in the obituary, the journalist even referred to him as the merchant of death. And so as he read this that morning, much to his horror, he lamented the fact that this is how the world would remember him. So he resolved to make clear to the world the true meaning behind his life from that moment on. It would be done through the allocation and the dispersal of his fortune. Upon his death, uh, his last will and testament involved the creation of an endowment of five annual prizes that were awarded for outstanding accomplishments in the area of physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, and peace. That's how he really wanted to be remembered. And so the result of an honest evaluation of his life was the awarding of the most valuable of prizes given to those who had done the most for the cause of peace, the Nobel Peace Prize. Now let me ask you this question. What would it do for you if you woke up tomorrow morning to read your obituary? Would it get your attention? Would it cause you to stop and evaluate the way you've been living your life? I can guarantee you that it would wake you up from complacency. That's what the Lord intends for the church at Sardis. That's what he intends with this passage in our lives as a congregation too. Would you stand with me? Let's pray tonight. You know, reputation is not always reality, is it? Reputation is not always reality. God looks past the surface and he's looking upon the heart. Where there is sickness, where there is even death and decay, the remedy is always revival. And the key to revival is always repentance and relying upon the power of God's Spirit. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, thank you for these letters to these seven churches, and Lord, how practical, how relevant they are, how convicting they are, Lord, in my life. Lord, when I think about the vital signs of what it means to be a healthy Christian, what it means to be a part of a healthy congregation, Lord, I'm, I'm convicted. And Lord, we want to be a healthy fellowship here where your word is central, where our fellowship is authentic, our worship is genuine, where our relationships, Lord, are more than surface. Because the days that are coming, as our culture gets increasingly difficult for the people of faith, Lord, our relationships are going to have to move far beyond the surface and superficial. And I think about brothers and sisters in many parts of the world where they're persecuted for their faith and Lord, their relationships in so many ways are so deep simply because all they have is one another and the common life of God within them. So Lord, help us keep the main thing the main thing. May that be true in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, this week we'll have opportunity, Lord, to speak your name and to share the love of God with those around us. Lord, our children, our grandchildren are watching us. And you're looking upon our heart, Lord. And we thank you for your grace. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. 
and all God's people say together, amen and amen.